And I would invite you to join me in reading Hebrews chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 14 through 18. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. In our previous week, last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus is uh, our elder brother, not ashamed to own us, to identify with us as our brother, uh, since he shared in the flesh and blood with us and makes us his own. And what an amazing statement, what an amazing concept, what amazing mercy and condescension that is, that Christ, the God-man, would call us brother and sister and delight to do so. Well, we want to read now, um, beginning in verse 14. My, uh, I, I did look at verse 14 last week, so we're going to really focus more on the verses to follow. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I listened to an interview this, this week on, on uh, a podcast. It was on a Nine Marks podcast. And uh, the woman being interviewed, uh, she and her husband, uh, he, he's, uh, they work together in church planting in the United Arab Emirates, which is on the, the Arab Arabian Peninsula. And she was telling of uh, right after the fall of uh, Kabul, Afghanistan, they had a number of friends who were Afghani house church pastors. And as soon as the Taliban took over, their lives were in imminent danger. And so they were, uh, they were uh, seeking uh, refuge. They were seeking to escape uh, the country. And she and her husband were in constant communication with them, trying to orchestrate uh, the deliverance uh, from, from that uh, imminent persecution. And she said, we didn't have anything to say to them that was true other than what we knew about God. We could not say, we will get you out. We could not say, you will live. We could not promise that they would survive the night and see the next day. But what we could say was what we knew to be true about the Lord. We told them, he knows what it is to be despised and rejected by men. He knows what it is for people to want to kill him, and he's powerful enough to help them. He's good, and he knows them personally. He died for them, and he's wise to know what is best. We could not promise them things that we could not promise. But we could promise what we knew to be true about God, his ability to save, his ability to do it if he wanted to, and that he is good no matter what he chooses to do. So that was what they could promise. And the question is, is that enough? And the answer is, absolutely, that is enough. So based on our text this evening, I want us to look at three things. The condescension of Jesus in taking human flesh. Secondly, the ministry of Jesus, why he took to himself human flesh. And then finally, the heart of Jesus manifested in his incarnation and his ongoing help. So let's talk, first of all, the condescension of the Lord Jesus. He was made like his brothers in every respect, verse 17 tells us. 
Now, we talked last week about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that from all eternity, Jesus is God, that God, uh, God the Son, second person of the Trinity. And in the fullness of time, at the incarnation, he took to himself human flesh, a human nature, a human body, and while his deity was not diminished in any way, he was still God. His humanity was just as real, just as genuine as yours and mine. Uh, I've heard people say, well, he was 50% man, 50% God. No, he wasn't. He was 100% man and 100% God. Ah, he was truly man and truly God. We can say that with absolute confidence. Truly man, truly God. Some of the greatest controversies throughout church history have been over this very issue, who is Jesus? Is he man? Is he God? How does that intersect? Uh, and some have erred in diminishing the deity uh, or even denying the deity of Jesus Christ and saying he was merely human. Others have erred in diminishing or denying the humanity of Christ. He appeared to be human, but it wasn't real. It just seemed like he was, but he was only appearing to be human. But the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is truly human and that he is truly divine. He is God the Son, but he is the God-man. And he took to himself a true human nature without sacrificing his divine nature. The catechism uh, reads, uh, who is the only redeemer of God's elect? This is a really uh, wonderful question and answer to memorize. Uh, the only redeemer of God's elect. Why don't you say that with me? You can read it there. Yep. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Now, this reality of Jesus in two distinct natures, truly God, truly man, two distinct natures, yet one person forever. There wasn't an intermingling of godness and manness, if we could say it that way. Two distinct natures, yet one person. It's called the hypostatic union. You ever hear that word, hypostatic union? Hypostasis means personal. The, the, the union of two natures in this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, John Piper says, the hypostatic union is the mysterious joining of the divine and the human in one person of Jesus. And he says the term itself is not really what matters. The reality, the concept is infinitely precious, that these two distinct natures would be united in the one person of the Lord Jesus. And it's important that you and I recognize what that involved. What did it mean for the God-man to embrace true humanity? Well, it meant that the infinite and eternal God, uh, the Son, chose for a time to dwell in one place and one time in a mortal human body. It means that the omnipresent God chose to restrict him himself to that place in that time in that human body. This all-sufficient God chose to endure hunger and heartache and fatigue, man of sorrows acquainted with suffering. It means the law-giving God chose to place himself under the law and even bear the condemnation of that law that we violated. That God, the judge of all the earth, of all peoples of the earth, chose to place himself under the judgment of God. 
for our sakes. It means the life-giving God chose to suffer death in our stead. God the Son. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, God did not die, okay? What's the mystery going on here? Jesus, truly man, truly God, truly experienced death. And yet we can't say uh, technically God died. Jesus died. He is God. It's, there's, there's mystery here. We can get ourselves all twisted around because a hypostatic union is mysterious. And we can't sort it all out. I've said before, and I'll say it again, I can't fully explain it. I fully can't, certainly can't fully understand it. I can recite it. I can give you the formula. I can, I can say this is the basics that we affirm. But to be able to distinguish with all the implications of that, it's beyond us. There's a place we just need to stop and trust and worship. This incarnation of the Lord Jesus has been called his condescension. He condescended to dwell among men as a man. It's not like a famous celebrity condescends to come around common people. It's that God, the creator of the the world, condescended to be part of his creation. The king of the ages willingly took, clothed himself in the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross. This incarnation has been called his condescension. It's also been called his humiliation because Jesus, who is God, who is worthy of all glory, who was worshiped in heaven before time began. It's interesting, one of the commentators pointed to a verse in Job where it spoke of the angels worshiping Jesus before creation ever took place. Well, when did God make the angels? I don't know. But apparently it was before Genesis 1-1. And Jesus was worshiped by the host of heaven for however long, but worthy of worship for all eternity. But then he entered into time and space and lived on this earth, and he was despised, and he was rejected of men. He was falsely accused. He was convicted, and he suffered every indignity imaginable. Again, the cruelty that Jesus experienced would be humiliating for any human, even if they were completely guilty for what they had done. But imagine the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the eternal God the Son, enduring such indignity, such mistreatment, such cruelty, such exposure, was humiliating. In verse 14, it says, he partook of the same flesh and blood experiences that you and I experience. In verse 17, it says, he was made like his brothers in every respect. So we have to ask the question, why would Jesus do such a thing? Why would he undergo such condescension and such humiliation? And Hebrews tells us the answer. It's because of his ministry that he undertook the purpose of his condescension of his humiliation, of his suffering, of his incarnation. We find in verse 10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He did it to bring us to glory, to make us his, to redeem us, to pay for our sins, and then to see us all the way home to heaven. It wasn't random. It wasn't meaningless. It was an essential part of his mission, of his ministry that he came to fulfill. Last week, 
I introduced a term, the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. How many of y'all remember we talked about that? How many of you had a conversation with somebody about that and said, that was really interesting? Or that was the weirdest thing I ever heard. I hope not. Uh, so, again, just to review, I'm not going to talk about the whole thing, but, but, but Jesus, uh, excuse me, God, being perfectly just, did not have to redeem any of us. He could justly condemn every single one of us and give us what we deserve, which is eternity in hell. And so in that sense, the atonement, Jesus dying on the cross, was not necessary. God would have been fully just and fully true to himself for Jesus not to do that. But God is not only perfect in justice, he's rich in mercy. And so he chose in mercy, he purposed that he would save some for himself. He would redeem us from our sins and make us his own. But in order to preserve the integrity of his justice, Sin had to be paid for. And so, as we read in Romans chapter 3, that God might be just and the justifier of those who come to him through faith in Jesus, Jesus became their propitiation, the atonement payment, the one who satisfied the righteous demands of God's wrath in our place for us. So, rather than pouring out only justice, he determined he would express grace and mercy as well as justice without compromising his justice, and the way he did that was to send Jesus to die on the cross. So no, Jesus did not have to die on the cross, but because God purposed to save for himself a people, consequently, the atonement was absolutely necessary. Anselm of Canterbury, he was an archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century, uh, wrote a book called Why God Became Man. He didn't write it in English, that's an English translation. But Why God Became Man, and he says this, he speaks of the incarnation of Jesus as being necessary to pay for our sins. That, that, that God, man, had to, that, that God the Son had to become man. He said, it could not have been done unless man paid what was owed to God for sin. A man had to make payment. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, God alone could pay it. So that the same person must be most, both God and man. Well spoken. Well summarized. The debt was so great, the, or the debt was human, and so a man had to pay it, but it was so great only God could pay it. And so there had to be a, a uniting, a, a hypostatic union, as it were, of God and man. Remember God said to Adam, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you will die. And when Adam and Eve chose to sin, death entered into the world. And death is the, is the payment or the wages for our disobedience to God's law. The wages of sin is death. Now, there is not a man alive on this earth or who has ever walked this earth apart from Jesus himself who would be qualified to pay for anybody else's sins. You know why? Because we've got our own to pay for. And if I were to pay for my sin, I would have to do so by going to hell forever. If you were to pay for your sins, you would have to do so by going to hell forever. You would never get out. You would never fully satisfy that debt. But Jesus, who is God, who is eternal and who is infinite, could pay the, pay the debt, that infinite debt, for all those whom he came to save when he died on the cross. Because he is God and he is man. So God the Son took to himself human flesh and a human nature. And as man, he was qualified then to die to pay for our sins. And as God, his death had infinite value 
in order to pay for the sins of all who come to God through him. Now, in this text, we find three reasons why Jesus had to become a man. In verse 14, we read that he defeated death for us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus came and suffered in order to defeat Satan, to defeat death, defeat the power of death and the fear of death that held us in bondage. He destroyed the power of the prince of the power of the air. And in Genesis, it's prophesied that on the cross, Satan would bruise his heel, but Jesus would crush his head. First John 15 tells us that the resurrection of Christ, that death is swallowed up in victory. So, he came to defeat death for us. Secondly, he came to make propitiation for us. Verse 17 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, meaning becoming fully human or truly human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And again, we talked about propitiation. It's a, it's a Bible word used numerous times. And it means that there is a payment that had to be made to God to satisfy the demands of his justice. Sins, the wages of sin is death. That death had to be paid for. God's wrath had to be fully satisfied. And so Jesus made that satisfaction, that propitiation. He turned aside the wrath of God because it's now been satisfied, it's now been fulfilled, and God is able to be reconciled to those who otherwise deserve his condemnation. God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil, we read in the book of Habakkuk. And yet the Lord not only looks upon us, he draws us to himself because Jesus has borne that iniquity. He has borne that that, that, that penalty. He became sin for us or in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He satisfied the justice of God so that we can be reconciled to God. The third reason that God the Son had to become man. Oh, excuse me, I'm jumping ahead here. Uh, a wonderful quote by, by Thomas Brooks in the Wellman, Com- Wellman Commentary said, in order that believers may become partakers of the divine nature, which is what Second Peter tells us, It was necessary for Jesus to partake of the human nature. I I think that's really a good good, uh, use of words. And again, notice in verse 16, it wasn't angels that he helped. It was sons of Abraham. And our understanding from from Old Testament imagery is that at some point, one-third of the heavenly host rebelled against God, following the lead of Lucifer who exalted himself against the glory of God and tried to make himself equal with God. And so these angels fell out of the favor with God and they fell under his condemnation. They were cast down out of heaven and became demons, the hosts of the hell, of hell. And God didn't redeem them. He left them in their just condemnation. Of course, the, the, the holy angels needed no such redemption. But God did not choose to redeem a single fallen angel. His wrath remains on them for all time with no hope of redemption. But he chose to redeem us, fallen humans, through the death, death of his son. Why would he do that? I'm just glad he did. I'm glad he did. Jesus 
defeated death for us. He made propitiation for us, and he helps us in our temptations. Pastor Richard, Richard Phillips at Second Presbyterian Church uh, tells a story of uh, earlier in his career, he was uh, on the faculty at West Point, the United States Military Academy. And uh, I grew up in Charleston where the Citadel is, and they have the same thing at the Citadel they have at West Point. When, when freshmen arrive, the new cadets, they put them through a grueling time of initiation. Uh, if you go in the military, you go through boot camp. Well, if you go through uh, uh, to, the, to the U.S. Military Academy, it's beast something or other. It's beastly painful and difficult. And so, uh, one summer, uh, as part of his responsibility, uh, Pastor Phillips was uh, overseeing the counseling ministry for these freshman cadets. He said the, 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 the rigors of what they were undergoing was so grueling, so painful, so discouraging. So many men were almost completely broken down and they wanted to quit and go home. And so, they developed a counseling program to help these guys see it through. But the faculty did not do the counseling. They were overseers of the counselors. The counselors were upperclassmen. Men who had been through that grueling experience, who had wanted to quit themselves, who had wondered, do I have what it takes, and somehow found it possible to finish. And now they are coming with that qualification to be able to say, I know exactly how you feel. I felt the same way. They are qualified. They're able to help. They have a credibility and an understanding to help young men realize, I don't need to despair. I don't need to quit. I don't need to pack it up and go home. Others have gone before me. I can too. Well, in an infinitely greater degree, that's what our Jesus does for us. He is fully equipped to help us in our sin, in our temptation, because he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he never sinned. He is able to help us in our discouragement because he knew discouragement. He's able to help us when we despair. Think of Jesus hanging on the cross. Were there ever more desperate words cried out than, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experienced what we experience and much more. So, so how is he able to help us? Well, Pastor Philip says, we think of Jesus' temptation. We think about the 40 days in the wilderness, right? No food, no water. At the end of the time, Satan comes and tempts him to turn stones into bread. Uh, if you study through the Gospels, Jesus never, ever used his miraculous power for his own consumption or comfort. He never used miracles to help himself. He could have called 10,000 angels to come and rescue him from the cross. He wouldn't do it. Satan was tempting him to use his miraculous powers to feed himself. He wouldn't do it. He said, you know, you don't have to go to the cross. He didn't use that term, but he said, if you will just bow down and worship me, the entire world will be yours. I will give it all to you. You don't have to buy it with your death, with your blood. He was tempted and when we think of Jesus' temptation, we think of that. But Jesus was tempted every single day of his life, just the way we are. Now, he, he may not have faced the precise form of temptation that you and I face. Gentlemen, Jesus was never tempted to look at internet pornography. But did he have to guard his heart as he reached out and showed love to prostitutes and other broken women? You better believe it. Jesus never, parents, he was never tempted to yell at his children or to chew out his wife, but we're the bride of Christ. 
and where his brothers and sisters and his disciples were oftentimes very <laughs> exasperating. He had to guard his tongue. Again, Pastor Philip says, we mustn't overlook the whole range of temptations to which he was exposed during all his human existence. And I love the way he says this. Temptations that would have interacted with every aspect of his human nature. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. Temptations interacted with every single aspect of his human nature. He did not have sinful desires that welcomed those temptations, but he had to battle and combat those temptations just like you and I have to. And because of those temptations, he knows exactly what we are going through. So let's think about some of the ways Jesus suffered, some of the temptations and exasperations and disappointments our Lord endured. First of all, he was, he was, uh, he was misunderstood by his family. He was teaching in a house publicly. Lots and lots of people were here. And one of his disciples comes and says, Master, your, your family's here. And it was his mother and brothers. And, and at that time, Mary didn't understand, and none of his brothers understood who he was. And they actually thought he had lost his mind, and they wanted to take him home. They're like, uh, he's, he's not right. And we need, uh, he suffered the misunderstanding of his family. He was betrayed into the hands of his enemies by his own disciple. For three years, he gave Judas that privileged position of being one of the 12, gave him an intimate look into his life. Where John says in 1 John that we have seen him and our hands have touched him and held him and we observed him. Judas saw and interacted with the Lord. And it's almost like Jesus would say, Judas, is that how you want to repay me? And in the moment where it, it mattered the most, Peter, who was a part of that inner circle of Peter, James, and John, Peter denied that he even knew who Jesus was. Jesus was, attempt, was tempted to be exasperated with his own disciples. Think these, these, these disciples watching Jesus in the form of a servant bickering and arguing about who is going to be first in the kingdom, jockeying for position in glory. In Matthew 17, right after Jesus had appeared to Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, they come down off the mountain, and uh, uh, there's this crowd, and Jesus uh, uh, approaches them, and his father comes and says, Lord, my son is possessed of a demon. I brought him to your disciples, but they were not able to help him. And Jesus' response was this. He said, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, who is Jesus talking about? How long do I have to be with you and bear with you? Certainly not the father who's asking, will you heal my son? Who was it that wasn't able to heal him that should have been? His disciples. How long, guys, do I have to put up with this? In John chapter 14, the upper room discourse, the night before Jesus went to the cross, our Lord tells his disciples, don't let your heart be frightened. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And when I go, I'll come again to take you myself, that where I am you may be also. And, 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 uh, and Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then he tells them, you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So from now on, you have seen him and you know him. And 
Philip is still kind of shaking his head, and he said, Lord, show us the Father and is enough for us. Now, Jesus had just told him. And so our Lord says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Just think of the, he's been with them three years. And the most basic fundamental truth, and wait a minute, you don't even get that? What have I been doing with my time for three years? You can imagine the temptation to be exasperated. In Luke chapter 22, it tells us after John, in John's account of the upper room discourse, it tells that Jesus washed their feet early, the disciples' feet early in the, the time of, uh, of his time with them, and then they had the meal. But after the meal, after he had served them the Lord's Supper, after he'd washed their, their feet, they begin to argue again about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Later that evening, Jesus took all of his disciples toward the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, you men wait here. And he takes Peter and James and John. He goes into the garden, and he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Just in case anybody's confused and not sure what's going on, my soul is very sorrowful. Self-revealing, vulnerable. Remain here. Watch with me. Certainly pray with me. And he goes a little bit further in and pours out his heart to God in prayer. And Peter and James and John, these stalwarts of faithfulness and reliability, fell asleep. Just think how disappointing that had to be to Jesus in this hour of intense agony of soul where he's sweating great drops of blood. He says, you men are my closest disciples. Watch with me. And they can't even hold their eyelids open. He doesn't excoriate them and say, what's your problem? He said, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. What mercy. Jesus understood. He understands disappointment. He understands exasperation. These men he poured his life into for three years, they let him down time and time again. He wept when he saw Mary's sorrow, Mary of Bethany, at the death of her brother. I don't think Jesus was weeping because Lazarus died because he knew he was getting ready to raise him. He wept when he saw just how much anguish Mary was experiencing over her brother's death. He grieved over Jerusalem when he said, how long I would have gathered your children to me as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you would not. Jesus knew hunger. He knew deprivation. The king of all the ages, the creator of the entire universe, had no place to lay his head. He was opposed by his enemies by the religious elite of his day who should have been the first ones to receive and welcome him. They slandered him constantly. They gave, brought all manner of, of accusations when he healed people on the Sabbath instead of worshiping him and saying, you must be the Messiah. The signs are undeniable. They accused him of desecrating the Sabbath and being of a demon. When he showed love and kindness to sinners, they said, that's, that's clear evidence that you're wicked because you're a friend of sinners. I'm glad Jesus is a friend of sinners, aren't you? Because I qualify to be his friend. They ultimately gathered uh, false witnesses who came and, and, and testified against him, and they couldn't get their story straight. 
And yet they held this total, totally fraudulent trial and convicted him, handing him over to uh, the Roman governor. They conspired together with the, with the Roman pagan occupiers to have Jesus executed to die the most humiliating death imaginable on the cross. It was an egregious travesty of justice. Has anybody ever treated you unfairly? Have you ever wanted to say, this is just not right? Jesus understands that. They beat him. They mocked him. They humiliated him in every way imaginable. And he did all this that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest for you and for me. He knows your grief. He knows your sorrow. He knows your pain. He knows your violated sense of justice. He knows your rejection. He knows your temptations. He knows your guilt and shame on the cross. He became sin in our place. The sinless Son of God experienced the horrors of sin without ever committing sin. He knows it all, which qualifies him to help us in the ways we need help the most. So let's talk for the time we have left about the heart of Jesus. We've looked at his condescension. We've looked at his mission, his ministry. Now let's talk about the heart behind all of that. Why would Jesus undergo such a ministry at such a high cost? It's found here in verse 17 when it says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Was Jesus merciful from all time? Nod your head, yes. Was he faithful from all time? Nod your head, yes. Was he a high priest from all time? Nope. He had to qualify to become that merciful, faithful high priest by becoming a human, by being tempted every single way that you and I are. So we find here that his heart is a heart of mercy. The psalmist we read a little while ago, he does not deal with us according to our sins. He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. God is rich in mercy and abundant in loving kindness. He's full of compassion for our suffering, even the suffering and the misery brought on by our own sin because the law of the harvest is not going to be mocked. God is not going to be mocked. So he, he suffered. He knows the depth of suffering that you endure. He knows much deeper suffering than any of you and I could ever endure. He knows disappointment. He knows sorrow. He knows rejection. He knows heartache. He is able to be empathetic. He's able to be compassionate. He knows and he cares and he's able and he's willing to bring relief. He is merciful and full of loving kindness. But secondly, he's also faithful. He will do all that he promised to do. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Well, how can God be just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us? Because sins have been paid for. That's a propitiation. It would be unjust for God to punish us for sins Jesus already paid for. So he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us because he has satisfied his justice. So verse 18, he's able to help those who are being tempted precisely because he suffered when he himself was tempted. So, so what does that help look like? What does it look like when Jesus helps you? How does Jesus help his child? That word help, <clears throat> translated here, <clears throat> it's an active word. It, it, it's the idea of laying hold with a hand, grabbing hold, or taking hold of somebody. Uh, <clears throat> it can be used for good. It can be used for harm. 
depending on the context. For instance, in Acts chapter 9, it says that Barnabas took Paul and led him to meet the apostles. And I can imagine Barnabas reaching out his hand to Paul, newly converted, who had last everybody saw him in Jerusalem, was, was leading this amazing uh, purge, seeking to destroy the church, arresting Christians, persecuting them, seeking to put them to death. He's gone to Damascus to do the same thing, and now he comes back and says, I've been, I've been converted. I've seen the Lord. I'm a different man. And the, and the apostles are like, we don't believe you. This is not safe. And Barnabas takes Paul by the hand and says, guys, here he is. We can trust him. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas were in Philippi, they cast the demon out of a, a woman who was a young woman slave girl who was uh, 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 able to tell fortunes. And the owners of that slave girl who were making money off her, her fortune telling were not happy with Paul. So it says they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them off to be accused before the magistrates. That word seized is the very same word. Laid hands on him. In Matthew 14, verse 21, uh, 31, rather, Jesus comes to his disciples. They're on a stormy sea, and, and they're afraid they're going to die. And Jesus walks on the water. And Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, order me to come out and join you, and says, come. So Peter gets out of the boat, and he starts to walk on the water, and he's amazed that he's not sinking until he turns and looks at the waves. And he sees the waves, and his faith completely crumbles, and he starts to sink, and he cries, oh, Lord, help! And it says, Jesus grabbed him up. Jesus took hold of him. Same word, help. And brought him back to the boat. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 9, quoting the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, it says that God took the Israelites by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Same word. So when it says Jesus is able to help us, he, in a sense, takes us by the hand and leads us where he wants us to go and provides all that we need along the way. It speaks of tangible help. Think about how God took the children of Israel across the wilderness. He, he through the, the, the ten plagues, delivered them from slavery to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They come to the Red Sea, and they're sure they're going to be uh, slaughtered by Pharaoh's army, but God causes the waters of the Red Sea to part, and they walk through on dry land. They got hungry, and so God causes manna to rain down from heaven every single day without fail. They got thirsty, so God causes water to flow from a rock. They don't know the way, so God leads them by day with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire. And when they finally arrive to the Jordan River to cross over into the promised land, he causes the waters of the Jordan to part, and they walk through on dry land once again. He met their needs every single day. Their shoes never even wore out over 40 years as he led them to the promised land. And so when Peter, sinking in that stormy sea, cried out for help, Jesus laid out, reached out his hand. He grabbed Peter. He rescued him. He led him to the boat. And when Barnabas introduced Paul to the apostles, he led him by the hand, as it were, to help him do what Paul could not have done on his own. And brothers and sisters, Jesus helps us to do what we can't do on our own as well. Now, that initial help described here is he destroyed the power of the devil. We couldn't do that, could we? He satisfied the justice of God in our place. We couldn't do that, could we? And he helps us <coughs> stand against temptation. We can't do that either in our own strength. That doesn't mean he prevents temptation from coming to our door. It means sometimes he 
delivers us from the temptation itself. Sometimes He enables us to stand fast and endure it, but He helps us. And the reason He's able to help us is because He Himself suffered. It's not that before the incarnation, Jesus couldn't figure out how to help us. It's not that there was some limit on His omniscient or omnipotent power that would keep Him from helping us, that would render Him incapable, but rather it was a matter of qualification to be a faithful high priest giving us the help we needed, he himself had to be like us. He himself had to be human and suffer all that we suffered. In Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He has this ongoing ministry until he takes us home. You might say, well, Pastor Jamie, how is it that Jesus is more qualified to help us after he suffered than he was to help us before he suffered? I don't know. <laughs> I, can't, I can't answer that question any more than I've already said. Simply as a human, as God with all power, there's something, something necessary for him to become a human in order to really be able to Harness that power for our benefit. And beyond that, I can't really go. But the real thing is that he was willing to do so. The amazing thing is that he understood how necessary it was for him to be the greatest help possible by becoming human. And so he was willing to do that for you and for me, that he is a merciful and a faithful high priest. The Lord Jesus, who before creation was worshiped by angels, was willing to take on human flesh and to suffer for you and me so that he would be able to help us in the ways we most needed his help. Now, what that help looks like varies from situation to situation. It never looks like what you see in the Popeye cartoons. Remember Popeye cartoons where, where his, his nemesis, Brutus, is just beating the living daylights out of Popeye? And somehow he is able to gain access to a can of spinach, and then somehow this, this spinach goes in this contiguous arc from the can of spinach into Popeye's mouth, and then somehow his muscles bulge out. Kids, don't believe it. It doesn't happen. No matter what mom and dad tell you, <laughs> spinach is good for you, but that's not going to happen, okay? And then suddenly Popeye is able to sling that arm around and box Brutus into the next county. That's not how Jesus helps us. Oh, that it was that easy, right? Sometimes it looks like Armed gunmen are coming, and those who are threatened get word just at the right time, and they're able to escape. Or maybe armed gunmen are coming, and, you, and, 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 and those who are threatened never know about it, and they go to the wrong address. You don't even know the threat was there because they went to the wrong place. Or maybe armed gunmen come, and they actually find you and arrest you and take you into captivity, and you are required to suffer but Jesus helps you to endure that to his honor and glory, even as he did, and you have the privilege of sharing in his suffering. And those who have suffered so for Christ would say, I experience the nearness of Christ more intensely and more powerfully in the midst of suffering than I ever, ever could, ever would have anywhere else. He helps us in the ways that he knows best. But please hear this. Jesus is willing to help you. Jesus is willing to help you. 
Look at all that he endured in order that he might be able to help you. He is not a reluctant savior. He is not a, uh, an exasperated high priest. He doesn't say, you again? How many times do we have to go over this? He doesn't get tired of us coming over and over and over again, sometimes for the very same things. J.C. Ryle and his expository thoughts on the gospel, has this wonderful uh, uh, way of expressing that God is more willing to help you than you are to even seek his help. These are some quotes. He says, the Lord Jesus is more willing to give grace than man is to seek it. Or he was always more ready to give instruction than people were to ask it and more willing to teach than people were to be taught. Or there's in him an infinite willingness to receive, pardon, justify, and deliver the souls of men from hell. Christ is far more willing to save us, then we are willing to be saved. That's the heart of my Jesus. If you're a Christian, that's the heart of your Jesus. He is willing. He is willing. Doubt no more. I go back to the sister, to the words of the sister in the Arab Peninsula, speaking to these Afghan church leaders who are fearing for their lives. They know the possibility of continuing the work they had been engaging in was, it was gone. It was impossible to continue, and they had to get out. Their lives were in constant danger, and she could not promise them, we will get you out or even that you will be alive tomorrow, but she could promise, and her husband could promise, Jesus knows what it is to be despised and rejected of men. He knows what it is for people to, to want to kill you. He knows what it is for armed men to come and to take you by night. And it's amazing if you go back and look at the arrest of Jesus. Who are you looking for, he says. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he, in the English translation, it says, I am he. But the Greek, trend, the Greek text originally just simply says, I am. And when Jesus said, I am, these armed men, soldiers, servants of the priests, ruffians, fall down to the ground. Now's your chance to make your escape, Lord. And I'm sure his disciples are just like, <laughs> and he stood there and he waited for them to get up. Who is it you've come to? Arrest? Here I am. My disciples, let them go free. Willing to lay down his life. Willing to endure such mistreatment. Willing to help you and to help me. He's powerful enough to help you. He is good. He knows you personally. He knows exactly what you need. He died for you if you're his child. He's wise. And he knows sometimes he needs to give you escape, and sometimes he needs to give you endurance. But whatever you need, he'll help you. And he's willing to do that. He knows. Jesus knows. Jesus cares. Jesus can help you. And Jesus is who you need every single day.